Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And we'd just like to read this entire text and we'll back up to really the the beginning of this whole section, which is Isaiah 52, verse 13. So follow along with me as I read. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a beautiful text. So I almost just want to say, let's close in prayer. It speaks for itself. But in our mini-series in which we've been examining God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the nations, We've seen that beginning in Isaiah 49 and the following chapters, we're we're seeing now God's plan really explained. And last week we looked at 35 verses from Isaiah 51 through Isaiah 52 verse 12, which really constitute the introduction to the text we just read, which is the most obvious and illuminating text in the entire Old Testament regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the text we just looked at. So tonight, I want to just spend some time kind of introducing you to this 15-verse masterpiece. Last week, we did almost two chapters in one evening. We're going to slow this down significantly and take about the next four weeks just to look at the text that we read this evening. And so I want to take a little time to set this up, and then we will look at the first few verses. 
But I want to kind of explain to you the significance of this text because both Jews and Christians have been, I think it's right to say, fascinated by and even obsessed by Isaiah 53. And when I say Isaiah 53, that's just a broad term to mean all the verses we just read, including 52, 13 through 15. But the main question for centuries has been, to whom does the servant refer? Who is this speaking about? And there's been three major interpretations historically. The first one is that Isaiah is referring to himself, that he is the servant of the Lord, suffering for the message of rebuke and the warning that he's been given, uh, giving to God's people. And there's some merit to this. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was ultimately executed by King Manasseh being sawn in two. And so this view has held a, a sizable following. The second view about the identity of the servant is that Isaiah is referring to Israel as a nation. And there is merit to this view as well, that they've suffered so greatly at the hands of people. And Isaiah prophesied that this would happen, that, that, that Israel as a, as a composite group, as a nation, is the servant of God who has suffered so for his sake. The third interpretation is that Isaiah is referring to the coming Messiah, to the coming one that many rabbis for centuries have referred to as King Messiah. And so I want to consider these. So first of all, for now, we'll ultimately just kind of immediately rule out that Isaiah is speaking about himself. We can rule that one out pretty quickly. It's doubtful that humble Isaiah would refer to himself in verse 12 of chapter 53 as the righteous one. He is not the righteous one. Um, he is not the one who calls attention to himself. Verse 12 speaks of atonement, that the servant will make many to be accounted righteous. So we already know that atonement can't be given by anybody but God. And so this has to be speaking of something higher than that. But if you're tempted to think this is Isaiah speaking of himself, we would have to contend with the fact that Isaiah has already given us his opinion of himself. Isaiah 6 verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so I think pretty quickly we can rule out Isaiah as being the recipient or the servant of this passage. So what about Israel? Well, now we get to a, a belief that has gained a lot of traction. It continues to be the prevailing view among many, many Jews that that has become officially the, the official dogma for much of Judaism even today. The official position concerning Isaiah 53 is that this is speaking of them, speaking of Israel. Now, one major argument for this position is that if we as Christians, if we hold to the deity of Christ, that he is God, and Isaiah 52, 13 through 53 is speaking of Christ, then it raises questions for them. And by the way, these are all questions that the well-taught Christian can answer from the New Testament. But consider these questions from their viewpoint. 52.13, if, if Christ is God, how can he also be called a servant? That would be a question they would have. Also in 52.13, how can it be said of God that he'll be exalted in the future? Isn't God always exalted? 53 verse 4, if Christ is God, then how can he be smitten and afflicted by God? How can that be possible? 53 verse 6, if the Lord has laid on Messiah the iniquity of us all, doesn't that mean that, that Christ is inferior to God, is below God? 53 verse 9, how can God die and be buried? Now you who know the New Testament, you're itching to answer those questions because to us, it's an, those are obvious answers. 
53 verse 10, if Jesus is God, how can it be said about him that God will prosper him? Doesn't God own all things already? So those are the questions they would have. But the view of Isaiah 53 as speaking of Israel, while it has some merit by virtue of those questions that can be asked, it doesn't hold water historically because it wasn't until the end of the 11th century that anybody believed that that text spoke of Israel. That was when Jewish scholars suddenly began pushing very vehemently and strictly for the nation of Israel interpretation that Israel is the suffering servant of God. The loose paraphrase of scripture called the Targum, done by Rabbi Jonathan ben Uziel, he studied under Rabbi Hillel during the Roman occupation of Israel, in other words, right during the time of Christ. In fact, they would have overlapped in their lifetimes in Christ's childhood. His Aramaic paraphrase on Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, he translates, Behold, my servant Messiah shall prosper. So that, that was the prevailing view in Jesus' day. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a collection of teaching and Bible commentary by the rabbis of Babylon who stayed behind in the centuries following the exile, they, they put this together in written form finally by the 6th century. But this is what they said, quote, The Messiah, what is his name? He is the one of whom it is said, Surely he hath borne our sickness. A reference to Isaiah 53, verse 4. And so, 6th century, the prevailing theological position of the Jews was that 53 is speaking of Messiah. In the ancient Midrash Rabbah, which is an exegetical commentary from Genesis through Ecclesiastes, there's a comment in their commentary on Ruth that says this, quote, King Messiah is the one of whom it is said, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. A little bit later, there was a commentary on Isaiah, a commentary called the Yalkut Shimoni, and it refers to, quote, King Messiah, of whom it is said, my servant shall be high and lifted up and lofty exceedingly. And so from the time of Christ, before the time of Christ, the time of Christ and forward, in the centuries after, everybody believed that Isaiah 53 spoke of Messiah. Nobody believed it spoke of Israel. So what happened at the end of the 11th century, to suddenly change that view. In 1095, Pope Urban II preached a sermon at the Council of Claremont, and he called for what we now call the First Crusade. He called for the First Crusade to recover Israel from Muslim rule. They weren't called crusades until centuries later. But the misguided Catholic crusaders, when they attempted to take the, the Holy Sepulcher, the, the believed burial place of Jesus, from the Muslims, they also lumped in with the Muslims what they called the Christ-killing Jews. And so while they're over in this land and, and finding out that they're killing Muslims, they see, hey, there's Jews there. Didn't Jews also kill Jesus? Let's go ahead and, and kill them as well. Well, then the thought dawned on the leaders in the Catholic Church that you know where most of the Jews are actually living? They're actually living right in our backyard. They're living in Europe. And so the high-ranking priests in the Catholic Church incited massacres of Jewish communities, especially in France, Italy, and Germany. Doesn't that sound familiar historically? Countless thousands of Jews were murdered, their synagogues were burned, and their possessions were pillaged. And this went on for two centuries. That's a long time. And from then on, the Jews' revulsion to anything so-called Christian only intensified. 
And from then on, the Jews felt impelled to reinterpret Isaiah 53 to make Israel the suffering servant. Why? Because the Christians said that, that Christ was the suffering servant and they were going to run from anything vaguely Christian. That Israel is the suffering servant led like a lamb to the slaughter. And they said this to refute the Christian interpretation of this, Christ, this uh, text speaking of Christ. But another reason that there was a major push to reinterpret Isaiah 53 was a problem that the Jews were having by the 11th century. And that was the fact that rabbis in the Jewish tradition were being converted to faith in Christ because of Isaiah 53. The noted scholar R. R. Joseph Ben Caspi, he lived in the 13th century. He warned the rabbis. He said, quote, those who expound this section of them as the Messiah give occasion to the heretics, the Christians, to interpret it of Jesus. So in other words, we have to reinterpret it because we're losing people in our ranks because every time they think that Messiah is, is spoken of here, they convert to him. So they didn't want that. So we would mark off our list, Israel, as the servant of Isaiah 53. So that brings us to the interpretation of Christ as the servant of Isaiah 53. Now, just to be clear, there are a lot of Jews who believe that this is speaking of the Messiah. There just aren't very many of them who believe that Messiah is Jesus. And so we would share that with them that they believe this is Messiah. But with the ancient rabbis who continued to hold Isaiah 53 as speaking the Messiah, they, they had a conundrum. They had a puzzle that to this day is still unanswerable to them. Many ancient rabbis were aware of the opposite elements of many pieces of messianic prophecy, not just here in Isaiah 53, but all over the Old Testament. Some messianic prophecy speaks of his suffering and speaks of him as a servant, and other messianic prophecy speaks of his subduing rebel nations and establishing himself as king. Even in our passage here, Messiah is simultaneously high and lifted up and his appearance is marred beyond human semblance. Which one is it? And that dichotomy happens multiple times just in these 15 verses. So many rabbis settled on a belief in two messiahs, that there was Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah son of Joseph, who dies in battle against Rome, and then there was Messiah ben David, Messiah son of David, who will establish his kingdom of righteousness after defeating Gentile nations. Other solutions, which is more popular today, that have been proposed include just saying, we're not going to answer the question. We'll wait for the forerunner of Messiah who's coming and he'll make all things clear. And if you know your New Testament, you're just itching to say, just read the gospel of John because the forerunner, John the Baptist, publicly said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed to him. And the New Testament solves the issues of these two different tones of Messiah very simply. It's a giant aha moment because when you read through the Old Testament, you do see a suffering, denigrated, marred Messiah and you see an exalted, strong, kingly, conquering Messiah. You say, which one is it? Then you read the New Testament and you go, how simple is that? He comes twice. First, he comes as a suffering servant. And second, he comes as a strong sovereign. And so there's the solution. But even after the 11th century, some rabbis continued to strongly insist that Isaiah 53 must be speaking of Messiah. And they still insisted on that. And and that's good, but they didn't identify him correctly. 
Rabbi Moshe Cohen Crispin in the 13th century, he complained that anyone who interprets Isaiah 53 as speaking of Israel is doing violence to the natural meaning of the text. And this is amazing. These are Jews with good hermeneutics. He says this, in fact, quote, that they're inclined after the stubbornness of their own hearts and their own opinion. I am pleased to interpret this passage in, accordan- in accordance with the teaching of our rabbis, of the King Messiah. I love how they refer to him as King Messiah. And adhere to the literal sense. This I shall be free. Thus I shall be free from forced and far-fetched interpretation of which others are guilty. And so there are rabbis and there are Jews today that believe Isaiah 53 speaks of Messiah. But for the most part, as a nation, their eyes have been blinded, their ears have been stopped up, and so when they see Isaiah 53, they don't see Christ. They see a future Messiah still. Now, obviously, we hold to the position that not only is Isaiah 53 speaking of the suffering Messiah, but the suffering Messiah is identified specifically in Matthew 1 as Jesus Christ. But we have to go no further than the New Testament to confirm this. There really isn't a debate because the New Testament tells us. Acts chapter 8 records Philip the evangelist, one of the seven men chosen in Acts 6 to assist the apostles. And he comes upon this Ethiopian court official. He was in his chariot and he's reading a scroll of Isaiah. And the court official, who was a eunuch, he was a God-fearer, a a non-Jew who was seeking to worship the, the true and living God. And so Philip comes up to him, and this is a great question to ask somebody, by the way. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody guides me? So Philip comes and sits with him, and the official showed him what he was reading. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is a slightly different and a legitimate translation of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. But listen to the question that the Ethiopian has. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Is Isaiah speaking of himself or another person? He says, who is this? And Philip gives an inspired answer in Acts 8.35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It is about him. Before the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written, God has given the gospel according to Isaiah. And Philip confirmed this. What about Jesus himself? What did he say? In Luke 22.37, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me And then he quotes, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53 verse 12 and says, that's me. So either he's a liar or he's Messiah. So Isaiah 53 is not about Isaiah. It's not about Israel. It is about Messiah and specifically it is about Jesus the Messiah. Now, if we were to climb in a helicopter here and kind of go up to a higher altitude and look at this text from a, from a high view, I think we would notice something. You would notice that in this set of 15 verses, there are clearly three major themes. Two of them are repeated, and one is the central focus of the text. Now, if, 
If you've, uh, many of you have learned in Bible Training Institute, a chiastic structure, meaning that the, there's a mirror image structure in which the first half and the second half are repeated in backwards order. So there's the first half and then the second half kind of mirror images this. And right in the middle, there's a central theme that tells you the most important part of the text. And so you have two themes repeated at the beginning, at the end, at the beginning, and at the end, and then one theme in the middle. First, you have the theme of the exaltation of the servant. The theme of the exaltation of the servant. And we see this in fifty-two thirteen through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So this comes as a surprise. It's, he's one who comes as one of the children of mankind, as, as a man and as a man who would be marred and disfigured, but he will be successful, he will be exalted. Well, we see the same theme at the very end of Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see and be satisfied, he will receive reward and spoil. So he, we see his exaltation at the beginning and at the end. And then the second theme, which is really a a paradox here, we have the humiliation of the servant. First is exaltation, then is humiliation. Chapter 53, verses one through three. He has no form or majesty that we should notice him. He's despised, rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He's someone that people hide their faces from. And then we have the theme repeated in 53 verses 7 through 9. He's oppressed. He's afflicted. He's a silent lamb led to slaughter. He's executed. He's cut off out of the land of the living. He would be buried in a borrowed grave as a poor man. He had committed no crime, no sin, no deceit, and yet he would be executed mercilessly. So he's humiliated. So we have his exaltation at the very beginning, at the very end, his humiliation in the second part and the second to last part. And right in the middle, we have the third theme, propitiation propitiation and if that's a new word for you it's spelled p-r-o-p-i-t-i-a-t-i-o-n now there's a school of thought concerning preaching in which you're not supposed to use big words i think that that's an insult to our congregation so i'm going to use them but the word propitiation is used four times in our new testament in the esv so that's a word you do need to know it's not just a big theology word it is inspired it's used by paul it's used by the writer of hebrews it's used by john and if you don't know what propitiation means you can almost figure it out just from the context of the the text that it appears in just listen to me read these to you and and we'll kind of begin to build what this really is romans 3 25 Speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this word in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. You're starting to notice that there's little things going along with this. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
So you notice that there's four main characters in all of those verses. You have the word propitiation, but the second main character is you have your sin, you have God, and you have Christ. All of those put together. Now, there's a couple of different Greek words used in those texts. One is literally the mercy seat, speaks of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant where sacrificial blood was sprinkled to appease the wrath of God. Another word used, it means to provide conciliation, to pacify wrath. So you have these four main characters, propitiation, your sin, God, and Christ. And if you put this together, we can then begin to understand that propitiation is the satisfaction and appeasement of the wrath of God against your sin by pouring his wrath on Christ. And so the problem is your sin. God is the one to whom your your debt is owed. And so Christ pays that debt. He satisfies the wrath of God. Therefore, he provides propitiation, satisfaction. And that theme of propitiation is the central focus of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, he has borne our griefs. Christ has carried our sorrows. He is smitten by God. He's afflicted by God himself. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, we're given peace with God because of what happened to Christ. With his wounds, we're healed of our sin. We turned away from the Lord, and so the Lord laid our sin on Christ. Now, if we were to put those three themes in the order in which they appear in the Gospels, they go in this order, humiliation, propitiation, exaltation. What did we just describe? We just gave a three-word description of the ministry of Jesus Christ. At first, he came as humiliation. He provided propitiation, and now he enjoys exaltation. Well, now we've introduced the text. I want to consider the first two instances of exaltation in 52, 13 through 15, and humiliation in 53, 1 through 3. And this is very simple. I just want to consider realities about Christ in these six verses, some realities about Christ. First, I want to have us consider Christ's success. Consider Christ's success. Look with me at chapter 52, verse 13, and we'll go phrase by phrase through this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. To act wisely, it's a word that means to have success at something, to do something with skill, to complete an action, to do exactly the correct thing. In fact, some translations rightly translate this, that he will prosper, that all that he does will be effective. The Lord Jesus himself affirmed that he had acted wisely to the glory of his father. He said in John 17, 4, speaking to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is pretty phenomenal considering that Jesus, the Messiah, has been prophesied for thousands of years and in a mere 40 months or so, he completed his task. 40 to 42 months, he did everything that the father had sent him to do. That's success. Every sermon, every healing, every demon cast out, every person who came to faith, every word, every act of the Lord was exactly according to the plan and exactly in the will of his Father. Now, the end of Isaiah 53 will outline in more detail the success of Christ, that he'll make many to be righteous like himself, that he'll have a prize for his faithfulness. 
a, a people with whom to share the glories of eternal bliss with God himself. But this is the success that was foretold in the very first prophecy of Messiah, that the evil one would bruise the head of Messiah, a temporary harm, but Messiah would bruise the head of the evil one, a mortal wound leading to eternal damnation of Satan himself. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, which predicted the success of Messiah. There's never been a question of his success. If you read about the temptation of Jesus by Satan, don't wring your hands going, oh no, I wonder what he's going to do. There was never a question. Jesus cannot be tempted with sin. He is God himself. Men tried to kill him before it was time. He didn't let it happen. Christ then allowed men to kill him exactly according to the timetable of God. And just when it seemed that evil was victorious and Messiah's mission was abandoned, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And now having fully paid the penalty for sin, having satisfied, having made propitiation, now glory and honor was going to begin rightly coming to King Messiah. So Christ's success is foretold here, but that brings us to something else to consider. Consider Christ's future Consider Christ's future. Verse 13, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And in Hebrew, those three words are are progressive. That high is this high, lifted up is this high, and exalted is way up there. That it's just this progression, this crescendo of exaltation. This is a triple evaluation of the servant, which, by the way, points as clearly to his deity, that he is God and fully God. Uh, the great 19th century Old Testament scholar Franz Dielich, he points out that Christ was indeed exalted three times over, and he asserts that this is his resurrection, his ascension, and his current uh, being seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus has been exalted in those ways, and that definitely is a part of his exaltation. But if the text is speaking of his resurrection, ascension, and his current place of exaltation, There's nothing in the text itself to actually tell us that. We wouldn't come to that conclusion without seeing other parts of Scripture. And those are true statements. But I don't think that's the main point of the text. I have a couple reasons for that. First of all, the the particular unique verb forms for those three verbs are rightly translated as something that will happen in the future. Now, obviously, from Isaiah's standpoint, everything in Isaiah 53 is in the future But we're going to see later that that's not the vantage point from which most of Isaiah 53 is written. So that would be unusual. The second reason I don't think that the resurrection, ascension, and his current exaltation at the right hand of the Father is the main point is that considering that we're in a text that's structured chiastically, as I said, with that kind of mirror image with parallel themes, you use the matching parts to help interpret one another. The end of the text gives the exaltation of Christ, of Messiah, as he will see his offspring, many will be accounted righteous, and the kingdom will be had for him and for all who believe in him. Those things are either in the works or in the future. Those are not completed things yet. I think the future of Christ is more clearly seen in other texts. Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is a future exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, that to Jesus, every knee will bow. So I don't think that's happened yet. I think that that he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
Yes, his resurrection, his ascension, his currently uh, being at the right hand of the Father is his exaltation. But I think Isaiah 52, 13 goes way beyond that. I think this looks ahead to what the end of Isaiah 53 says to a time when his redemptive plan is consummated, it's completed. I think it looks ahead to the final coup de grace that Christ will issue to his enemies as he conquers the earth. Listen, this note of total victory is sounded at the very beginning and at the very end of this poem here because nothing in between looks like victory. From then on, it just looks like defeat because all of a sudden now, third, we consider Christ's disfigurement. We consider Christ's disfigurement. You are a human being with a body. You are not just this separate entity with a soul and the body doesn't matter. You are made in the image of God. You are made with a, with a physical body and with a soul. And so Christ must redeem all of those. And so we see that, that he is receiving in his physical body the, the punishment due to you as well. Consider Christ's disfigurement, verse 14 of chapter 52. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is a shocking statement that the servant would be battered and beaten so badly that he would be beyond, be beyond recognition, not just beyond recognizing that this is Jesus, but beyond recognizing that he's a human being. I actually think this helps us understand Thomas just a little bit better. I think it helps us understand the fact that Thomas be- refused to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead because Jesus had been beaten into a bloody pulp. He had breathed his last on the cross in a body that the most modernly, technologically advanced emergency room could not have resuscitated. That you could not have said, well, if only he had been in the 21st century, we could have called 911 and could have helped him. The pericardium, which, pericardium, which encases the heart, had been pierced with blood and water, bleeding profusely out of the wound in Jesus' side. That's a, that's a fatal wound, even if he wasn't already dead when that happened. Thomas was just thinking logically that no one recovers from the level of battering and beating and wounding that Jesus endured. In fact, did you notice in this verse that for a moment, God, who is speaking descriptively of the servant in the third person, that he shall be high and lifted up, For a moment, he turns to Christ and he addresses him directly as many were astonished at you. And he speaks to him. Now, the question here in verse 14, who are the many? Who are the many who are astonished at the disfigurement, the tremendous suffering of Christ? Well, as we'll see in verse 15, God is speaking of atoning for the sins of many nations. And here in verse 14, many is a theologically specific term referring to all who would believe in him, that they, or we, are astonished at what had to happen to Christ to pay for our sin. And there's always this tension in us. In true believers, there is this tension. There's thankfulness for the sacrifice of Christ, and then there's horror and shock at what he had to go through to provide for our salvation. It's like when we receive the Lord's table, it's at, it's at once, all at once, a somber, serious dark thought that Christ had to die and it's also a celebration that his body and his blood has been shed for our sin. Mark chapter 14 records this dichotomy, this kind of tension. A grateful, forgiven woman anoints Jesus' head with costly oil 
And Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And what is she doing? Simultaneously, she's celebrating in gratitude her thankfulness for forgiveness, and yet she's apparently cognizant of what her forgiveness will cost him. So those two go side by side. Fourth, let's consider Christ's atonement. Christ's atonement. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. If your Bible has a footnote that suggests that sprinkle may be better rendered startled, further studies have shown that that's not the case. Sprinkled is the best translation there. Sprinkled is a reference to sacrifice. Leviticus 16 verse 15 speaks of the blood of the sin offering being sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the throne of God on earth. Hebrews 9 verse 12 confirms that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice and his blood is that which secures redemption, but not just annually, not just at the sin offering, but eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the servant fulfilling a priestly function, the, the, the work of cleansing from sin by means of the sprinkled shed blood of the sacrifice. Why did the blood have to be sprinkled on the mercy seat? It was proof that something died. In this case, proof that Christ died. Proof that the sacrifice had been made. It was the bringing of payment to God. So we see that the purpose of humiliation, his humiliation, is to cover the sin, to atone for the sin of many nations. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that the Messiah is not just Israel's Messiah. The world needs a Messiah. He is the anointed one of God to save Israel and to save the world. And I, you may have noticed that verse 15 completes a comparison. Verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, in the same way, verse 15, many will be atoned for. So the many in verse 14, those who were astonished, those who were saved, verse 15, the same many are atoned for, are forgiven. Isaiah 53 stands as a witness that the world has misjudged Jesus badly. To the kings of the world through centuries, Jesus has been nothing more than a baby in a nativity scene at Christmas time. Maybe an example of humility, maybe an example of human kindness, but nothing more. But there will be a day when many who look down on Jesus will now look up to him. Fifth, we would consider Christ's supremacy. His supremacy. Verse 15 Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. This speaks of a day when the kings of the earth, rulers who are not accustomed to being silent, not accustomed to being silenced, will bow in submission to the King Messiah. This word for the shutting of the mouth, it speaks of silence that's based in shock or based in immediate respect and deference and reverence. The kings will bow to the king who is the king over all the kings. To the kings of the earth, the heavenly decree goes out. You will be silent. You will be quiet. You have nothing more to say. And that before Christ, the mouths of the greatest of humanity are closed. But what is it that will silence them? What's the heavenly decree? Well, there's some truth about the servant that has dawned on them. They're seeing something they had not been told. They're understanding something they had not heard. 
We call that theologically revelation, that God has revealed himself. This is the real truth about Jesus Christ, that far from just being the baby in the manger to be warmly remembered at Christmas time, he's the one to whom mankind must bow in veneration and worship and fear. The rulers of the earth will realize their grave miscalculation. Their mouths will be closed by the majesty of the coming of the King of Kings. Jesus himself described his own coming in Matthew 24, verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the knees of the kings of the earth will knock and their mouths will be closed. They will be silent. As Romans 3 tells us that every mouth will be silent before the law of God. And when I read this, I think how far-fetched is it, this human fantasy that a person will reason with God, that someone can talk his way into favor with God. My question is always, well, what gives you the impression that God will even let you speak? What gives you the impression you'll have the ability to speak? You know, when I read the account of the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 in which all of the unsaved dead of all the ages will appear before Christ the judge, I don't see them talking. And I don't see them having a defense attorney to represent them. There's only one defense attorney in heaven and that is the Lord Jesus himself. And for him to defend you, you have to admit to him that you have no defense, that you have no excuse, that you have no righteousness, you have no good deeds, and you have to admit that he is the only way, he is the only truth, and he is the only life. Some kings will shut their mouths because they will worship Christ. Other kings will shut their mouths because they're about to be judged by Christ. But all the kings will shut their mouths. Sixth, consider Christ's people. Consider Christ's people. 53 verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, there's two questions asked here and Jesus himself answers those questions. In Luke 10 verse 21, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will that the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ is revealed to little children, meaning those who bring nothing to the table, those who bring nothing but need and sin and repentance and sorrow to God, who don't bring their good works. They bring nothing but need. Jesus said in Matthew 27 that all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. Listen to this. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Anyone that the Messiah himself chooses to reveal the truth to. And the bigger context of all is Isaiah 53 indicates that many who would later believe at first did not believe. And ultimately the answer to the question, who has believed, is simply those who would have faith. Those who would come by saving faith to Christ. Who are Christ's people? The one who knows that he is the arm of the Lord. And there's a progression here. Look back with me at chapter 51, verse 5. 51 verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. That could just be theological doublespeak for my strength. But then in chapter 51 verse 9, 
Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Now it seems that the strength of the Lord is being personified a little bit more. 52 verse 10 The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Okay, the personified strength of the Lord will be visible, but how will the strength of the arm of the Lord be visible? 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, for he grew up. The arm of the Lord is a person. And who is the one who has believed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? All who would believe on him. Seventh, consider Christ's humanity. Consider Christ's humanity. Chapter 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Like a root out of dry ground. This is, this is easy to understand. In other words, this is like family tree talk. This is, he came from uh, the, the places we came from, normal origin. Matthew 53, 55, or 13, 55, rather. People said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know him? Didn't he grow up in Nazareth? How could a mere man be the arm of God? And how could God grow up before God? How is that possible? Well, Luke Two gives us the answer. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But the servant and his message, he's met with dismissiveness. He's not taken seriously. He is completely earthly by all appearances. Now with those with spiritual eyes to comprehend, Isaiah is reintroducing here some imagery. He's reintroducing the imagery of chapter 4, verse 2, the branch of the Lord. He's reintroducing the holy seed imagery of 6.13. He's reintroducing from chapter 11, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots. And so we have this, this growing out of the ground imagery. Isaiah, what he's doing is making it clear that when Messiah comes, he'll grow up out of the same ground that you grew out of that he'll come from you. And here's the irony of this. That's the very reason that his own people dismissed him. John seven forty one. others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Because the arm of the Lord, the first time he comes, doesn't look anything like a conquering hero. There's no majesty. There's no outward appearance that would be expected of a sovereign king. He looked just like everyone else. And here's the irony. The fact that he looked just like everyone else is why the Jews missed him. But prophetically, that's why they should have known him. That if somebody came riding in on a white horse in majestic, uh, majestic splendor, they should have said, that's not what scripture says. Scripture says he'll ride around on a donkey, not on a white horse. That if he came in as a, as a conquering king, they, would, they should say, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says he'll be born as a baby in the town of Bethlehem. That they should have known that he's a man just like us. That when they say, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't he from Nazareth? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? This could be the Messiah because he's just like us. They should have recognized him. Well, finally, let's consider Christ's rejection. Christ's rejection Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief or, or sickness or illness. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Far from following Christ, his own people rejected him. He was despised. This is the same term used in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21 of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the loathed persecutor of the Jews, whose actions set off the Maccabean revolt of 165 AD, that he was hated. He was despised as an outsider. He had sorrows. It's a word that means physical or mental or emotional distress. He had griefs, meaning human problems, human illness. He's a, he's a, he's a, understands this. Everything human, he understands. He's experienced it. You know, for every one of us, no matter how bad life gets, generally we have one or two or three people that will stand with us and always be there. Jesus had no one, no one at all. How lonely must that seem to think out of all the people on earth, not one person will stand with me. Jesus told his disciples the night he would be arrested, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quoting Zechariah 13. What has been alluded to, what has been hinted at in Isaiah up to this point suddenly becomes as clear as a New Testament gospel. That the servant is the King Messiah who would come to save his people from their sins. Now, by now, you've probably noticed that this prophecy is very unique, and I want to just point out two unique qualities that it has. First of all, very often it uses second-person pronouns, we, us, our. In fact, look at 53, verse 1. Just follow along with me. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So who is speaking here? It's not God speaking. It's not God speaking. God doesn't need to have sins atoned for. Who is speaking here? 52 verse 14, the many who are astonished. 53 verse 3, the ones who hid their face from him. 53 verse 3, the ones who esteemed him not. This passage, far from identifying the servant as Israel, these six verses are spoken by Israel as the ones who crucified Christ. There's a second unique quality. Beginning in 53, verse 2, the Hebrew uses some unique verb forms which tell a story. It's a verb form which is meant to carry the narrative, to continue the flow, to make you look forward. Uh, In English, we would call this verb form, it would be something like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Our English Bibles rightly translate those verbs in the past tense because the verb form is meant to convey a story that has already happened. And this is what is so unique about Isaiah 53 because it's not so much a prophecy of the life and death and atonement of Christ, it's much more a memoir, a diary of something that already took place. Now, what situation could you envision in which Israel, God's people, 
are reading Isaiah and seeing that they're reading of Jesus, reading of what they did to him in the past and what he really was. Revelation 7 tells us that during the great tribulation, God will raise up 144,000 saved Jews, sealed Jews, who will be essentially 144,000 evangelists to have their eyes open, their ears unstopped, and proclaim the true gospel around the world. Revelation 11 says that God will send two witnesses to Jerusalem during the last half of the great tribulation to preach the gospel of Christ to the Jews, and many of them will believe. Revelation 12 says that during the terror reign of Antichrist, God will protect his people of Israel in the wilderness for three and a half years to await the return of Christ. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says that at or near the end of the great tribulation, Jerusalem will have poured out on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, or as Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Zechariah 12.10 goes on to say, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. What has God done here? God has planted in the ancient prophecy of Isaiah a picture-perfect theologically complete gospel-proclaiming account of Jesus Christ in the past tense for God's people in the future to read and come to faith. It's a guy by the name of Israel Cohen, and you can't get a more Jewish name than that. I think that's the top Jewish name in the history of the world. He writes this. Once I was in the Navy and away from my parents, and I had the opportunity to do some new things, not all of them strictly kosher. And also to consider some ideas I could never have thought about before, ideas like Yeshua being the Messiah. My father and I regularly attended our conservative synagogue in Philadelphia, especially during the high holy days. And from the age of eight, I went to Hebrew school every afternoon. But after my bar mitzvah, my religious education came to a halt. Later on, I joined the Navy and found myself away from home for the first time. And of all places to get stationed, I wound up in Morocco, North Africa. One afternoon, I sat alone in the barracks. A young sailor came over to me and asked if I was Jewish. When I told him I was, I was he asked me to teach him about being Jewish, since obviously he was not. As I started to tell him, he interrupted me and he said, Can you teach me about being Jewish from the Bible? So I got a hold of a Jewish Bible, but I didn't know where to turn. So he asked me to turn to Isaiah. Now I was having trouble finding Isaiah. So he found it for me and turned to the 53rd chapter. Read this aloud, he said, and I did. At first I thought I had the wrong Bible. Was this young sailor tricking me? It sounded so much like what my Christian friends used to say about Jesus. My confusion deepened when the sailor took out his New Testament and had me read the third chapter of a book called John. I read about a Jewish man named Nicodemus talking with Jesus, and I could not figure out why a Jewish person would want to talk to Jesus, the Christian. He thought Jesus was just another Christian. My friend explained that Jesus was Jewish. The New Testament was written by Jews, and that it tells all about the Jewish Messiah. Never in my life had I been so confused. But after three hours of talking and reading from both our Bibles, especially Isaiah 53 in my Jewish Bible, my confusion started to disappear. I understood that I needed the forgiveness offered by Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. 
But I also knew I was Jewish and that Jews don't believe in Jesus. I was so torn that I actually cried that sleepless night, pulling my blanket over my head so that others could not hear my weeping. I then turned on a flashlight so I could read the New Testament my friend had given me. As my tears fell upon the pages of the New Testament, I could no longer resist doing what I knew I had to do. I prayed to God and told him that I believed that Jesus was really the Jewish Messiah. I asked his forgiveness for the many ways I had failed to live as I knew God willed. A few moments later, I went peacefully to sleep and then woke up to a brand new life. That's why we call this the gospel according to Isaiah. Well, we're just getting started in chapter 53. In the next few weeks, we'll just kind of eat this feast together one bite at a time. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the beauty and the clarity with which you have revealed Christ to us. You have not made us guess about the person of Jesus Christ. You have fairly shouted him from the rooftops. You have made him so easily accessible, so easy to know. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for revealing to us who you are. We thank you for revealing to us who we are as sinful humans. And thank you for revealing to us that there is a solution to sin. In his name, the arm of the Lord is King Messiah, Jesus. We thank you for this text. It's my prayer that this text will increase our worship of Christ, increase our awe of him, and increase our love for your word in which you have so graciously revealed him to us. We've never seen him. We've never laid eyes on him, but through the text of scripture, we see him and we know him. We are like the kings of the earth, that that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for giving us that understanding of Christ. And I pray it would make us more like Christ. All for his sake we pray, amen.